Good Sunday evening, everyone, and welcome back to Sith's Basement. It's Dan the Sith. I'm hanging out with you tonight, and I've got a packed show in store for you. We're going to check up on some experiments in basement shenanigans down here. I've got a top 10 Star Trek The Next Generation countdown. Episode-wise, I've got some major Q&A and plus two rants for you. I've got an intriguing and exciting show lined up, so let's get it on. Now, the experiments here today in the basement where it comes to the Minnesota Wild fan and the Dallas Cowboys fan down here in the basement is on loop. Star Trek, the original series, Spock's Brain, one of the worst episodes ever produced and ever aired for Star Trek. This is absolute torture, and most of season three for the original series was bad. And it really was the nail in the coffin for the show itself. I mean, you had low ratings. The show was always besieged with low ratings, but this was just really, really bad. And you had the promise that NBC went back on, where they were like, okay, we'll give you a key slot after Roland Martin's laughing on Monday nights. But then they had the fingers crossed behind their back and gave it the slot of doom at the time. Friday nights at 10 p.m where a bulk of their key demo audiences were out on date night, Friday nights at 10. You had the showrunners change because Gene Roddenberry decided to step aside from a lot of the showrunning responsibilities because of how NBC went back on their word. Now, season three has a few cool nuggets that are there, but they're few and far between. It's definitely not a fun season, but Spock's brain is just absolute torture. It's one of the episodes that I refuse to watch and even on Amazon Prime, which I have, I see, I go, nope, hard pass. Therefore, it's the experiment today. And on with our Next Generation episode countdown. Now, Star Trek The Next Generation was honestly, for the most part, seven solid seasons of television. Now, I can't say that the last two feature films were any good, but hey, you can't win them all. Now, like with any shows that I do like to watch, there are episodes I will pass up, as I feel as though I need to do so, and episodes I could watch all day long and not get bored. So here are the top 10 Star Trek Next Generation episodes in my top 10. And yes, I'm involving two-parters as one episode as a caveat. Command number 10 is the Arsenal of Freedom from season one. This is where the Enterprise D goes to, is it Minos? It ends up being on a planet where an automated computer controls these probes that get stronger and attack not only the two landing parties, but also the Enterprise D. You get the late great Vincent Schiavelli as the salesman welcoming people to Minos. You get Geordi LaForge commanding the Enterprise and later on the battle bridge because of the separation deal. While he's in command of the ship, because you have two separate landing parties. At first, it's Riker, Yar, and Data. But then, Picard and Dr. Crusher end up going down as a second landing party. Overall, this is a personal favorite. Coming in at number nine, Time's Arrow, the season five cliffhanger that starts off season six. In this episode, the Enterprise comes down to this planet and finds that Data's head is one of the artifacts. So you have Data, Picard, Riker, Troy, Dr. Crusher, and Jordy in 1890 San Francisco 
They see Guinan in 1890s San Francisco as well. It's a really compelling two-parter. I really like the portrayal of Sam Clemens as well as Jack London in this. And it really added a nice story into the lore of Next Gen. Coming at number eight is The Royale from season number two. Baby needs a new pair of shoes. Um, this is the one where Riker, Worth, and Data transport down into a planet that's got ammonia store brewing head quick. And when they get trapped in what appears to be the hotel, they figure out that, oh my goodness, we're seeing the events of a novel. So they have to play a part in the novel in order to get out. This was a fun episode where it had its moments of humor and where Next Gen really started to bounce on its own. It's one of those episodes that I can either watch out when it's on BBC America or enjoy every minute of it on Amazon Prime. It's a rare gem where you have a show that's still trying to get its footing. Coming at number seven is the season one finale, The Neutral Zone. Now, this story about the Enterprise going into the neutral zone is a personal favorite. And yes, if not for a looming writer's strike, we could have seen the Borg in this one. This is the one where after Data brings on board three people that were frozen from the late 20th, early 21st century. You have that as well. You get some laughs in this as well as really solid drama. And unlike today's incarnations of Star Trek where it comes to Discovery, Picard, Lower Decks, it's a humanist point of view politically where you can agree to disagree. All in all, it ended a season full of ups and downs, swing-wise, and gave us some hope going forward for the show itself. Coming at number six is the series finale, All Good Things. Now, cool note about this episode, as they were pre-production, filming, and editing this one, there was also work on Generations happening. And for the cast, they had about a week and a half, two weeks off after filming all good things into Generations. In this one, Picard has to stop a cataclysmic force threatening three timelines. The Farpoint mission, one about 10 to 15 years in the future, plus present day. This was a good view. This is a good viewing and a good way to bookmark the series as well. The ending is very, very sentimental, but it's also awesome. Coming in at number five is Elementary Dear Data from season two. This is the episode that some of us think really put Next Gen on the map and started to drift away from the original series roots. In this one, while the Enterprise is waiting for the USS Zapata to arrive, Data, Jordi, and Pulaski go on the holodeck to see if Data can solve a Sherlock Holmes-type mystery. The problem is that Jordi gives the computer an order. Create an adversary capable of defeating Data. And who does the computer come up with? The evil Professor Moriarty. This was a really cool episode. And it's actually one of the episodes where I actually enjoyed the portrayal of Pulaski, who I thought was too much of a McCoy clone. 
all in all, this is always a good watch. Coming at number four, Tapestry from season six, which I think was the best Q-related episode. In this one, Picard dies because a heart valve that he needed to get needed to get fixed again kills him. And while he's in the afterlife, Q encounters him and says, I'll tell you what. Something happened during your academy days. How about if you go change it? Okay, well, changes it, and you go on from there. This gives you the full thing of what was said in the shuttlegraph in season two when Wesley was taking an academy exam, entrance exam, and Picard was going in for an operation. Who goes back to season two in a way. It's a really good episode because you see what actually happened in that bar with Picard and his friends post-Academy. And it's probably one of my favorite portrayals of Q as well, with the idea of careful what you wish for. Coming at number three is Family from season four. After a really good episode arc with the best of both worlds, you have a nice interwoven episode that kind of brings everything together post best of both worlds. Enterprise is going through major repairs after their fight with the Borg, so Picard goes to France to see his estranged brother along with his wife and nephew. Lieutenant Worf gets a visit from his adoptive parents, and you also get Wesley Crusher getting a memento that was to be given to him when he turned 18, a message from his late father. All in all, this is a very heartwarming episode, and people tend to overlook this one as it comes right after arguably one of the best episode arcs of the entire series, but it kind of puts things back into perspective going forward. Coming at number two, Unification, the two-parter that involves Spock and gives a major hint into the events of Star Trek VI, which is released a month later after the airs. In this two-parter, you have Picard and Data having to find Spock on Romulus as it's worrying the Federation that there's a possibility that Spock defected to Romulus. Meanwhile, the Enterprise is at a shipyard at Quailor 2 trying to solve the stolen, a stolen ship mystery. This is a solid two-parter, and it's probably some of its finest moments, the whole nine yards. And Spike gets a chance at the end to tap into his father's mind to get some of his father's knowledge after he dies, so after his father dies. So all in all, just a great episode. And coming in at number one, it's obvious, it's best of both worlds. It's Enterprise versus the Borg. First cliffhanger as season three closes, season four opens. It set the template with how season four ends with redemption and begins season five. How 5 ended with Time Zero, which started 6, and how 6 ended with Descent, that started Season 7. It's Locutus of Borg, which bleeds into a plot device for Star Trek DS9 in the pilot, where you have a, a very icy relationship between Sisko and Captain Picard. It's the most popular episode arc of the series, arguably, 
and basically helps set the stage for First Contact that came out in theaters in 96. You've got Commander Shelby trying to go over Riker's head and there were times she's XO. It's just brilliant and what I call the best of next gen. Now it's time for some Q&A. You want to reach me for Q&A? Reach me on Twitter at TruthSithDan74. Sith, your thoughts on Ricky Gervais and his take on the cancel culture and movement? Look, this shit's got to stop, folks. It's one thing if someone's a racist or a misogynistic or a sexist or a religious bigot or a homophobe or a xenophobe but going after someone just because you disagree with their politics and you're trying to get them fired because you don't agree with their politics, that's fucking bullshit. Okay, it's rather sad, but in this country, we were founded in part because people got tired of the British crown telling people how to think, how to pray, how to believe, and how to speak politically. Today we have a bunch of assholes in office or running for elected office. I admit that. But shit, I'm not out here trying to get somebody fired from their jobs because they don't agree with me. It goes like this. If you don't want people going after your job because of your political views, don't do it to other people. Be the bigger adult. Period. And stop whining, for God's sake, over a film or a book or music that is politically incorrect to you. Just because you don't like it doesn't mean everybody has to hate it. Same deal. Come on. Let's be more humanist about this. Not so out of our minds about it. Enough said. Question two, Seth. Uh, your thoughts on AMC Theaters doing a slow rollout on Thursday, this coming Thursday, with 15 cent showings all day. Now, before I get into my answer, Regal is also starting to reopen as well on Thursday. Now, I won't be going to the theaters next weekend, but if you want to have at it, go for it. I personally myself don't feel 100% safe going into the theater at this juncture. But if you feel like you will be safe, go for it. I'm waiting another two months for Jordan Peele's Candyman reboot or in November the Bond film No Time to Die in November. Then I'll consider going back to the movies, but not until then. Question 3, Sith. Thoughts on the professor who said that Trump will win re-election as a 13-point system? Well, this is definitely more scientific than polls are, to say the least. And he has predicted with this system every election since 1984. He predicted Clinton winning both times. He predicted President Obama winning both times. He predicted Trump's election. Everything. Okay, And he also admitted on CBS News Network that with COVID-19, Trump had lost four points and gone down to six points, which would have been a fail. He's back at nine points because the three economic points are going up. 
but the continued unrest drops him. So he's now standing at 9 out of 13 points, which is a passing grade. So using his system, Trump, according to this guy's metrics, does get reelected. But again, November 3rd, we shall see what the final tally is. Question 4, Seth, any under the radar horror picks to watch at home that I might have missed? Thanks in advance. Hey dude, um, look up below from 2003. I watched it last weekend with a really good friend of mine who said, we were just looking. And they were suggesting, yeah, let's watch this. I'm like, yeah, cool. So we watch the same time as Voodoo, on Voodoo. Really good suspense horror film in the vein of The Abyss or Leviathan or Deep Star Six, but set in World War II. If you get a chance, watch this one and get back to me as to whether you like it or not. And you're welcome, dude. Have a good one. Uh, question five. Sit. I don't get your hate for Rob Zombie. Enlighten me if you could, please. Sure, look. I love Rob Zombie as a musician. His solo work plus his work in White Zombie was really good shit back in the day and it's unmatched. However, I hate his script writing. Oh my goodness, it sucks. And it's just because it's really bad redneck dialogue with the C word nonstop. It, it just really gets bad. Now, I can get past it in House of a Thousand Corpses as it was his debut and also his version of Halloween 2. I can get past it because it's not as much there, but his really bad writing kind of killed Devil's Rejects and Three from Hell, and it really killed the first third of Rob Zombie's Halloween from 2007 as well. He just got to get better writing scripts, that's all. Stop with the redneck dialogue so much. It really just gets to you. Question six, Seth, we know you're stuck in the 80s of sorts. Do you feel a lot like Joe Mantenga's character in the 1994 film Airheads? Oh, hell yeah, I do. I can't lie to you and say that I don't feel like his character is like an alter ego for me. When I found out that 80s music was on oldie stations, I'm like, what a crock. This shit ain't happening. Later on that day, I was listening to a classic rock outlet and Smells Like Teen Spirit came on by Nirvana. I'm like, oh dear God. I'm either gonna be stuck in the past or I've got to accept change. It's all good, but man, you talk about a shock to the system. But I had to remember though, there was a time when 70s music started matriculating into oldies stations and the 50s music was kind of getting phased out. And people that loved the 50s and 60s music really started to feel a little apprehensive about it. And same thing in the 90s when 80s titles are getting mixed into classic rock. Same deal. Um, just a lot of outcry from the diehards. And they had the same feelings, but they kind of got along with it. And so have I. Question 7. Sith, we know you're a major U2 fan. What's your favorite song by them? That's easy. Angel of Harlem from Rattle of Hum. Love that band like crazy up until the pop album, but that song always gets me in the feels. It's because I saw Rattle and Hum opening night in the theaters. I just absolutely loved it. So long, Angel of Harlem. Okay, there we go. Uh, question eight. Seth, your take on the Save Our Children movement. Okay, let me be very candid here. I'm for saving all children of all walks of life. 
Not just because of a goddamn political statement. We need to help and protect kids that are being used for sex trafficking as much as we do. We need to help and protect the kids that live in areas, suburban, rural, and urban, that are affected by violence as well. There's help and protect those in houses where there's a lot of abuse. All children, regardless of where they live, the color of their skin, sex, national origin, their families, whatever, they should be protected, period. Enough of using them as a political statement, rise above and be the bigger adult. Tamir Rice's murder never should have happened. But neither should have the murder of the kid that was all over the news last week either. They both go hand in hand, folks. Just stop with the political pandering already. If you're going to pick and choose which kids' lives matter, you're part of the fucking problem. Period. Question 9. Seth, what formats and or local radio hosts have been in RVA the longest that you can recall? Okay, we had a duo here that included someone who was a legacy out here, Bill Bevins. But when a classic hit station turned into a jockless automated jack station, he was let go and he was a Richmond staple for decades. Formats are things that stick around here longer though. We've had a top 40 station, Q94, that's been top 40 my entire life. Okay, our alt rock station, XL102, was evolved from a longtime album rock station. And the alt rocks format's been on 102.1 for going on 18 years now. It was 102.1DX, then went back to XL102, but same format, alt. Um, we've had a sports talker on AM radio that's been this way for 27 years. We've had a news talker for 26 years. An adult contemporary station for about 30 years that was beautiful music and just kind of segued into it. And two long-term urban outlets, urban contemporary outlets. We have 106.5 The Beat, which has been on the air now for 19 years. And Power 92, which was originally Power 93 and earlier in the mid to late 80s, Laser 93. But all that's, so you're talking about since 86, 87 for that string of stations. Got a country music outlet, K95, that's been like there for bygones. And not to mention also Kiss Heaven, which is an adult urban outlet out here. It's been around since about 2000, but it's evolved into two frequencies to cover the area. So there you go. Last question, Seth. Have you had a chance to watch both Alien and Predator franchises in chronological order? How is it done? Break it down for me. Okay, here you go. The first film you're watching is Predator. It takes place in 1987. The second film you're watching is Predator 2, because it takes place in 1997. The third and fourth films you're watching in sequence is Alien vs. Predator and Alien vs. Predator Requiem, because they take place in 2004. Okay. The fifth film you're watching is Predators. It takes place in 2010. The sixth film is Shane Black's The Predator. It takes place in 2018. Then you get into the Alien series fully here. 
with number seven, Prometheus. It takes place in 2093 for the most part, so that's in seventh. In eighth, Alien Covenant, which will wrap up the prequels so far. 2104 is where that takes place. And then we get into the four Alien films that the top two people, the first few people absolutely love. The other two people are very lucid at best. You know, lucid and lukewarm at best. You have Alien that takes place in 2122, so that's in ninth. 57 years later in 2179, you get into the movie number 10, which is Aliens. And also in 2179 and number 11, Alien 3, because it takes place right after the events in Aliens. And then lastly, in 2381, you have Alien Resurrection. Now, the only two films I refuse to watch in this list of 12 films are Alien vs. Predator Requiem and Chainblank Black's The Predator. So, I would go Predator, Predator 2, Alien vs. Predator, Predators, Prometheus, Alien Covenant, Alien, Aliens, Alien 3, Alien Resurrection. There you go. Now, a rant about Kevin Kleinsmith taking a guilty plea. Now, there's a lot of misinfo being floated around, and it's about time for some major info to be dropped here. People are saying this guilty plea is insignificant, nothing's major, but this means that Kevin Kleinsmith is a cooperating witness in the Durham probe. Okay, and you have people, and there are several probes. You've got cross, one into Crossfire Hurricane, you've got one into Spygate, and other government corruptions, investigations that go back decades. There's several people that are, have either been interviewed and are currently cooperating with these investigations, or people that may not be interviewed yet, but might be in time. Now, I know for a fact that Lisa Page, Peter Strzok, James Baker, all related to the F, connected to the FBI, and Bruce Orr, who's still working at the DOJ, are cooperating witnesses, but they won't say it in public. In public, they're still screaming, Russia, 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 but they're cooperating witnesses as well. So why would these people become witnesses to cooperate in an investigation? That's easy. Get a lighter sentence. They're informants. They're ratting on people. That's what's up. Remember the cliffhanger of Kill Bill Volume 1 where you have that hook ending where Spill's asking Sophie after his arm's cut off if the bride knows his daughter's still alive? A more proper correlation, though, is Goodfellas, when Henry Hill was looking at decades for drug trafficking and racketeering, so he became an informant and actually was put in witness protection. So something along these lines, folks, where you have the plot twist of, hey, do they know this? And also, man, I need to save my hide. This was bound to happen eventually with investigations right and left surrounding decades of corruption in government. You were going to have people that were going to be cooperative witnesses in these investigations in exchange for a lighter sentence. It's just the nature of the beast, that's all. Hell, Baker's notes prove that Durham was looking into this two years ago before Sessions resigned. So, you've got that issue going on. 
So you ask me, Seth, what's the timeline for things to really start to rolling for these things? For the people that are corrupt in these investigations, when do things start rolling downhill? Stopgap. I don't think you're going to see a major cascade until after the election. Once that happens, then you're really starting to not only see the results of these probes, but the unsealing of over 185,000 sealed indictments as well. You might have a few charges here or there, or a few more guilty pleas coming out in the next month, two and a half months or so. But the real floodgates open up after November 3rd. One last thing before my take on the Biden-Harris ticket. When you finally see that this goes much deeper than the last administration, and it has nothing to do with Republicans or Democrats, you'll be ready eventually to see the full truth. And that's your first memo. Okay, one last rant before we shuffle out of here for the night and turn out the lights here in the basement. A lot of people are asking me how about, about how I feel about Vice President Biden picking Senator Kamala Harris as his VP pick. And honestly, I need to ask you all something candidly. Didn't you get the fucking memo when I started talking politics on True Radio Network that I don't like anyone at all politically on the right or the left for the most part? Yes, that even includes President Trump, Vice President Pence, former Vice President Joe Biden, and Senator Kamala Harris. I don't like either. I don't like any of them. Yes, it's a pick that was calculated, but also one that the media rushed fast to protect by saying, you can't attack Senator Harris. She's a person of color, and therefore, she's not to be attacked in any way. Stop gap, though. That protection does not go to libertarians or conservatives that are persons of color. It's only for Democrats. How many times have you seen Clarence Thomas get attacked? Oh, God, it's endless. How many times have you seen, you know, Sarah Palin and Candace Owens get attacked? I mean, Sarah Palin's not a person of color, but she's a woman. And four years ago, we were told you can't attack Hillary Clinton. You're a sexist if you do that. Same deal, just white instead of African-American. But I digress. The protections are only for people who are Democrat, not anyone else. Now I'm already sick to death of hearing, oh, they don't like each other. So fucking what? Ronald Reagan and George H.W. Bush hated each other at first. They grew to respect each other through the gate years of the Reagan-Bush White House. And they only became friends after the Alzheimer's diagnosis of Reagan. But they stuck it out for eight years, despite their differences. George H.W. Bush and his VP Dan Quayle. There were times when Bush, I'm sure, wanted to pull Quayle aside and say, would you sit down and shut up? With his remarks about a TV show and a whole bunch of other stuff, they really didn't like each other. Clinton and Gore, that was a match made in political heaven, but it was absolute hell because Gore hated Clinton, and Clinton really wasn't much of a fan of Gore. John McCain and Sarah Palin were honestly total opposites. They did not like each other at all. John McCain was in the situation of telling Sarah Palin, I really 
stop stop going so hard right. Okay? President Obama and VP Biden aren't as tight as you think either. And you see, folks, politics makes very strange bedfellows. And when the time is right, you join a rival on board. But you also obey the number one rule of Michael Corleone. Keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Heck, I don't even think that Vice President Pence and Donald Trump get along as much as portrayed. And of course, the media is lauding this as a smart pick. I can't say it's a bad pick. Yes, both former VP Biden and Senator Harris, as well as President Trump and Vice President Pence, have political skeletons that are going to be unearthed in the next two and a half months, as we are 79 days away until the election. That's to be expected. Now, the major downfall for now is that right now the media is somewhat in a honeymoon with Biden and Harris. And Biden and Harris are ducking media questions at this point, but like with Trump and Pence, the honeymoon's not going to happen forever. Eventually, they're going to have to answer the hard questions. When that eventually takes place, it's going to raise a lot of eyebrows, big time possibly for moderates, who are on the fence as well as independents and libertarians. Now, the catch to this is very simple. That's why I think it's a calculated pick. You have to have balance on a presidential, vice presidential, presidential ticket these days. And Vice President Biden, in a lot of circles, is still considered to be a moderate of sorts. So you needed a more progressive pick, and voila! Enter Senator Kamala Harris. She's been portrayed in the media the last couple of days as a centrist, as a moderate, but she's very much a Bay Area, Northern California progressive. Now this is going to turn off some people in the middle, and the far left is still saying Bernie or bust. So it might be a turnoff for them as well. But make no mistake, this was a calculated and smart pick. But it was put in there by the DNC to try to unite the party despite all their differences. You see, the RNC and the DNC have a common thread. A lot of their political tickets are meant to bring the parties together. That's what it's meant to do. McCain and Palin, that was meant to bring both sides together because the conservatives hated John McCain. Hated him. Let that sink in. They know that there was a lot of disdain from Obama supporters and Biden supporters back in 2007-08 where it came to certain remarks that Biden had said about then-Senator Obama but the DNC brought them together to be a ticket. I could say the same for Trump and Pence. Trump, until recently, really hasn't gone evangelical, if you will, whereas Pence really brought that vote in. So there you go. Both parties always try to unite the party as much as possible to heal their divisions. But in final, The payoff will be seen in November 3rd. And that's your last memo of the night. And there we go. Another episode in the books for Sith's Basement here on True Radio Network. And there are other shows involved as well here with True Radio Network. Monday nights, 7 p.m. The No Spots Podcast with CP3, Robbie G, Paul the Boxing Guy, 
Anna Kay, and DeJanae Bland. They have all your DC sports without the politics. This week, if there's a Wizards Roundtable, DC's People's Champ of the New Spots podcast, he'll be joining them for that as well. They'll have your news about the Nance. They'll have an update on the Caps. They'll even have news from training camp from the Washington football team's training camp, formerly known as the Redskins, as they've got training camp in Ashburn this year. So all of that tomorrow night, 7 p.m. Now this week on the No Spots podcast, we have another two-part pod coming out. Part one, you'll have DC's People's Champ, along with his tag team partners, myself, Dan the Sith, as well as Donnie Wrestling from the Wrestling Ranch in West Virginia. In the first part, we will be breaking down our predictions for NXT TakeOver 30 and SummerSlam. WWE has that big pay-per-view weekend where you have NXT TakeOver on the network and then the next night you have SummerSlam. We'll be covering both. Then in part two of the pod, we'll have our recap on the week that was in the week of wrestling. So it's something to look forward to, which should be dropping during the week this week. And we know that part two will be dropping Sunday at 10 a.m. With Saturday afternoon being the drop for TakeOver SummerSlam preview. Next week here in the basement, which will drop at 6 p.m. East. I'll have another countdown for you. Yet more in Q&A, because there's a lot of Q&A to break down. And also a possible rant or two, as we'll be getting out of the Democrat convention and going into the Republican convention. All of that here on True Radio Network. And coming soon, we will be having the return of True Talk. Please also enjoy DC People's Champ of No Spots Pod. Please enjoy his other show, Behind the Curtain, where he interviews his friends and people that are related to the wrestling world that's behind the curtain, a part of the No Spots Podcast. And also, along with True Talk coming back soon, coming soon also is the return of Hurt's House, which is Thursday nights with The Big Hurt where he does DC sports with the politics. He'll dive into politics at times. He'll talk about music, wrestling, you name it. And that's it tonight here in the basement. Hope everyone has an awesome week. I'll talk to you next week and a very happy tomorrow to you. Good night, take care, and see you next week.